It's my pleasure to um, introduce Chrissy Clute. Um, on the website, we wrote about her, that she writes about identity, the land, mystery, divine love, the passage of time. She's creator of Writing the Wild, Field Guides for the Way, and author of A Good Way Through, a book of poetry. She guides retreats, workshops on writing, creativity, spiritual practice. She works and plays in the East Bay outside of San Francisco on an ancestral lands of the Olone and Miwok peoples with a husband and two sons. So you already knew that because you looked at our website. But um, so, Chrissy, I'm trying to figure out if we're welcoming you back home here. If or are, is home in San? I don't know where home. You can tell us where home is, but where <laughs> here and there. Some of you will know Rick and Nancy Lindroth. Uh, that turns out to be uh, Chrissy's mom and dad. Uh, we're glad to have you here today. And um, we were comparing notes last night. My daughter Emily and Chrissy kind of grew up about the same time in the same church. And Chrissy's done a couple programs here at Upper House before. So I think this is this your third so. third time back with us. So. Um, when we thought about this theme and saw where it was going, it we said, well, who should we have come? And, well, we ought to have Joel. Well, we ought to have Chrissy. And so, thanks. Come on up and lead us next session. Thank you so much, Cam. It is such a privilege to get to come back to my hometown, my alma mater. Um, it's it's a gift to be here with you all. So thank you. Um, and it's been such a delight to see how this river theme has come <laughs> into so many different areas of our time together this morning. Um, I have the true delight to guide us in a time of meditation and creativity before I'll then share with you some of my poetry and some of my thoughts about writing and poetry. Um, so take a deep breath. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to set aside some of your inhibitions and your um, maybe hesitancies around uh, being creative this morning. And I know an event like this often does attract people who identify as artists and writers. But for perspective, I have called myself a poet for about three years. And it still kind of freaks me out to see my name like poet and on a, on a PowerPoint presentation because it's a fairly new identity. We've built up all these um, requirements to call yourself an artist. And so I just invite you to set those aside for this next half hour or so. Um, I'm going to invite you into a bit of a meditation using your imagination in a few minutes. And then after that, I'll guide you in some creative play. Again, if you are not an artist, that is okay. The things I'm going to ask you to do do not require any skill as a painter, and you're not going to be doing them in front of anyone. I'm not going to invite you to dance or to sing or to, you know, demonstrate anything from up here. Um, but before I jump into the meditation, um, I'm going to read a poem by Rainer Maria Rilke. It's translated by Anita Barrows and Joanna Macy um, in this book, Rilke's Book of Hours. 
Um, it's called, I Believe in All That Has Never Yet Been Spoken. I'm going to read a lot of poetry to you today. If I don't tell you who it's by, it's mine. Um, but I will also be reading some poets and writers that I love. And so this poem immediately came to my mind when we were talking about rivers and watersheds. Um, you may have heard some of it before, but it gets a bit at why I create and it continues this, this metaphor of a river. I believe in all that has never yet been spoken. I want to free what waits within me so that what no one has dared to wish for may for once spring clear without my contriving. If this is arrogant, God, forgive me. But this is what I need to say. May what I do flow from me like a river, no forcing and no holding back, the way it is with children. Then in these swelling and ebbing currents, these deepening tides moving out, returning, I will sing you as no one ever has, streaming through widening channels into the open sea. Close your eyes for a moment if you're comfortable, or just let your gaze fall down past your nose. Take a deep breath. Feel the chair under you holding your weight. The floor beneath your feet. All the way down to the land that holds us. Take another deep breath and another. I'm going to invite us to wander in our imaginations for a moment. For me, this is a kind of imaginative prayer. It's meditation for some, or maybe just daydreaming. Take a moment to picture yourself upon the land, maybe in a place that you know or a place that you knew in childhood, or maybe a place you've only dreamed about. Imagine your way there for a few minutes. Look around you in your imagination. What do you see? What do you hear? What do you smell? Take a moment to explore this landscape. Move through it. Interact through your touch.
look around. Do you meet someone? Maybe a plant, a creature, an element, an ancestor. Does this being have something to show you? Ask of this being or of this land itself, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? We'll spend one more moment just exploring this place in our imagination. Being present with what has come to us, who has come to us. Consider how you might like to say goodbye. And as you leave this wild inner landscape, I invite you to listen for one word or a short phrase to carry with you as you come back to this place this time, present in this group of people. What word, what phrase do you carry back with you? Thank you for wandering with me a little bit. Now we're going to start this next um, practice, I'll call it that. It's just like practice, like, you know, baseball practice. We're doing an art practice. It's low stakes. I invite you to take that one word or phrase, or if, you, if nothing came to you in the moment, think about what came to your mind as you wandered about in your imagination, or maybe that was really hard for you and there was something that you were thinking about instead of doing that. That's okay too. What's one word from that experience that you want to play with? And we are going to make objects that represent these words. These beautiful table decorations are actually not just decorations. And right now we get to tear into them. Everything from the rocks and the stones to the things in the vases, that they are intended for your use and your play. And what I'd like you to do, us to do, is to make an object that somehow represents this word using the materials in front of you. Now, 
again, low stakes. When I was planning this, I remembered this Sunday school activity when I was about five years old. And they gave each of us a piece of masking tape inside out to wear as a bracelet. And then they sent us out just, at, you know, by the parking lot in that little bit of, of woodsy area next to the very, very old Blackhawk building. And told us, make yourself a bracelet. And I remembered distinctly, even though I was very small, picking off dandelion heads and bits of grass and leaves and things and sticking them to this masking tape bracelet and just being so proud and excited about these natural things that just leapt out at me and became something beautiful. So that is the spirit in which we are creating today. Your first step is to choose something to hold your word. So in the bucket, there's a few wood circles, which are a nice, flat, easy surface to write on, and there's Sharpies. On your table, there are also rocks and bits of driftwood. You can grab anything that strikes you. If your table runs out of something, check another table. There's some extra supplies in back. And then we have hot glue guns and other materials, twine, which you can wrap around things if you'd like. There's moss, there's pine cones, there's flowers. You can tear leaves off of things. But I'm going to give you about mm, probably, what time is it here? 10 or so minutes, maybe 15 to just make something, chat as you do if you would like. I'm going to put these questions up if you would like to use them to guide conversation. You can talk about what the experience of the meditation felt like to you, what word you're playing with, if you have any inklings about what that word is inviting you into, if there's anything that resonates with you from the morning so far, anything that Joel said that struck something in you that you want to talk about, or if you're like, I'm in the zone here, I don't want to talk keep your head down or just say, I'm just going to listen and, you know, watch for those cues and other people. Some of us need a little space to, to digest what we've been hearing so far. So that's OK, too. Um, I will give us until about 11.05, maybe 11.10. And when you're done, you can place your object up here on this beautiful waterscape. You can take it with you home when you or home with you when you leave, but find a spot to stick it so that we can see kind of what, what words are surfacing for people. If you have a question, come find me. I'm going to make one too. Thank you. And if you need to keep playing with the stuff on your table while you listen, I am not offended by that. Um, so sometimes we listen best when our hands are busy. If you feel inspired and want to keep sticking things together, wrapping them up, Go right ahead and do that. <sighs> okay. I'm going to take some time now to talk to you a little bit about why I do what I do. Um, oh, yes. If, when you're finished, add your objects, which many of you have. Um, I'd love to leave them up here for a few minutes after because they're so picturesque to use that word. Thank you, Joel. <laughs> they really are stunning. And then before you leave today, though, feel free to take your object with you if you want to. And I would just think about a spot to put it where it might um, keep the themes from today present in your mind, like next to your kitchen sink, where you'll see it when you do dishes or on your nightstand, or if you have a little spot on your car dashboard where it won't slip, but somewhere where you'll, where you'll bump into it in the ordinary day, and it can hold these things in your mind. So, 
I'm going to read you some poems and I'm going to talk about why I do what I do. In the beginning, nothing was and breath hovered over the surface of the deep. Words spoke a story into being and it was very good. To some in the Celtic Christian tradition, God did not create the earth out of nothing, but God created the earth out of the only thing that existed, God's own self. And so, according to this Christian Celtic tradition, all of creation was made out of the body of God and all creation sings God to us. And we also are made out of the body of God, made in God's image, creatures created to create. A friend once told me, if nature is God's first language, then you are a translator. And so that is the work that I strive for. That is the work that I try to do, to translate, to give voice to the earth through whom God speaks. I want to read this Rilke poem one more time and talk a little bit about its meaning to me. The, what I love so much about poetry is that I can read this poem and see my life in it because I bring my life and my story to the words and you might read it and take it in a totally different way. That's the power and beauty of art and metaphor. There's truth in it and yet we also bring our own story to it. I believe in all that has never yet been spoken. I want to free what waits within me so that what no one dared to wish for may for once spring clear without my contriving. This opening stanza speaks to desire and the desire that comes with creativity, this desire to make, to express. If this is arrogant, God, forgive me. But this is what I need to say. May what I do flow from me like a river, no forcing and no holding back, the way it is with children. I love the opening of this stanza because he admits this, the rest of this poem sounds a bit arrogant, especially the last stanza, which we'll get to in a minute. But it's just this desire to let his expression of God, his love for God to just flow out of him naturally without forcing, without holding back, letting go of the, the need to produce because someone else says you have to do it a certain way and just making for the sake of making like kids do. Then, in these swelling and ebbing currents, these deepening tides, moving out, returning, I will sing you as no one ever has. And that's where the arrogance comes in. And yet it's this beautiful desire to sing God the way no one ever has before. Let it just flow from me, streaming through widening channels like these channels we see before us into the open sea. Rivers are such powerful metaphors. And like I said, this poem probably means something a little bit different for each of us. For me, it speaks of this desire to create out of who I am and what I want to become and who God is and what that means for me. 
And it might mean something a little bit different to you. And that's the beauty of this this book of nature, the nature, the book of Revelation, the first book. It's words, the words of the earth, God speaking through all of the land around us are intimate as all good poetry is. The earth is not only our home, our sustenance, our life, and glorious in and of itself in its beauty. It is also a living metaphor for God that we get to experience fully embodied with all of our senses. We stand upon the land. We eat the fruit of the land. It Literally, the atoms of the stars become our bodies. We are fully integrated with this land that is always singing of the glory of the divine. This is a poem I wrote about that a little bit. It's called The Shore. Enter me, she beckons, curling toward my clothes, my toes. She leaves bright gifts at my feet, tumbled in her surf to softness. She roars in her approach and for a moment just before the crest, I see right into her, clear and green. Then the tip dips in a white rush, a surge at my ankles, and I am running along her shore as she chases me with waves, laughing. Were I to enter, she would carry me away. I see but the edge of her vastness. The earth has so much to teach us about what it means to be human, about what it means to live well. And our art and our words can give voice to that, as words do throughout the scripture. Job 12 says, but ask the animals and they will teach you, or the birds in the sky and they will tell you, or speak to the earth and it will teach you, or let the fish in the sea inform you. We are to look to the earth to be our teacher. In his book, um, Becoming Rooted, indigenous theologian Randy Woodley describes taking a nap as a young person outside next to a stream. And he opens his meditation by quoting Shakespeare from As You Like It. And this, our life, exempt from public haunt, finds tongues in trees, books in the running brooks, sermons in stones, and good in everything. And Woodley goes on to describe how it feels to lay down to rest out in nature. He says, as you lay your body down to become one with the earth, reality shifts. In that state, you can sense that God, creator, is listening to the intentions of your heart. Great mystery unscrews the tight lids of the jars of certainty that you hold too tightly, too fiercely. You realize, sometimes even trembling, that something greater than yourself is meeting you. When we encounter the earth, we are bewildered. There is this wildness, this great mystery that unscrews the tight lids of our certainty a little bit. Moments like this of meeting the divine in creation 
are woven throughout the Christian sacred texts. Those of us from a Christian tradition might be familiar with stories of the burning bush, of God speaking through a donkey, even God coming into the world in a barn full of creatures, animals, announced to the shepherds and to the sheep in the hills. And the role of nature in these stories is integral. So often we think it's peripheral, but it plays a key part. Wild creatures attend Jesus in his 30 days in the desert. Prophets are fed by ravens. Early in COVID, um, we were meeting with our church online and, and I was on a Zoom call. And my husband was also on the Zoom call, but he's the pastor. So we're off, often Zooming from different rooms. So I was with the kids and, you know, it was this whole complicated Zoom situation. And in the middle of, I think there was music or something happening. All of a sudden, Dave goes, oh my gosh, look. And he points out our front window and this huge red-tailed hawk had landed on our front path and it had a squirrel in its talons and it was mantling. That's what they call it when they spread their wings over the squirrel, kind of just daring anybody to come near and started walking up our front path with this squirrel. And we were all just like, oh my gosh. We felt this feeling that a writer named Brian Doyle calls Raptorous. It's like rapturous and raptor put together. Raptors, great birds have a tendency to do that to us. We go, oh, look, look, there's an eagle. Look, there's a hawk. Oh my gosh. We felt rapturous. Have you ever held eye contact with a deer in that moment where they freeze and their ears come up and they just look at you? Have you ever held your breath gazing into the eyes of a coyote? or even at the stars, or seen a bluebird look at you and just cock its head slightly. A number of years ago, um, at probably 10 or 15, my husband and I went to um, Hawaii for a belated honeymoon adventure a couple years after we were married. And we did this one extravagant tour, which was a night snorkel with manta rays. Manta rays are stingrays that get to be like 15, 20 feet wide. They are giants and they are so graceful and they are so gentle. They have no stingers. And there was this spot in um, on the big island of Hawaii in the north where they did this night snorkel and these manta rays had been coming there for many years and you could watch them. Um, and, and so a, a few years ago, just maybe two, we decided to go back to Hawaii and I told Dave, we have to go to that same town. I mean, I'm sure there's other great things in Hawaii, but I want to see the manta rays again. And so we did. And we we swam again with the manta rays. And um, I wrote this poem about that moment of encounter. It's called Messenger on Bright Wings. Darkness is deeper under the sea. I cast my light into the ink, surprised by all the clicks and scurries inattentive to the night. I do not belong here. Welcome only because I cannot stay. I lie at the surface between worlds. I would gasp if I could as she rises. Wide as a room, she spins on velvet wings. Once, twice, mouth agape to catch the light, the life within the light. Three, four, so close I see inside her as she turns. I am lost to all but the bright canvas of her body. 
five, and she brushes my arm with a wing as she passes down away into the night. I am left with nothing but my great joy. We have removed ourselves from intimacy with creation, the intimacy that our very bodies were made for. We've walled it out, walled ourselves in. We pave over the earth. We barricade ourselves from the weather. We see nature through glass and screen. Our collective soul ache requires medicine. And the land itself is a good healer. This is Field Mark 73, How to Just Be. I J. Drew Lanham. Real world inside means inside obligations to attend to. Widget making, deadlines pressing, bills always due. More and more, four walls feel like a trap, a cage with no escape. Not being out, not wandering somewhere wild seems sinful. There's something wonderful I'm not witnessing. Some bird or beast flies or creeps by as I stare into someone else's expectational chasm. It's an expanse I'm increasingly unwilling to span. A new sun warms in brilliant hues. The same tiring orb sinks into the abysmal blue. When that coming and going cycles absent my firsthand witness, I'm squandering time. If wildness is a wish, then I'm rubbing the lamp hard for a million more wandering moments. So what do we do? In her new book, Collisions of Earth and Sky, Heidi Barr argues that direct physical contact with nature is essential to well-being. I would agree. Not all that long ago, maybe a few months, it had been a very full and hard season. I hadn't gotten out into the hills where I lived to hike very often. It was easy to put off. I was recovering from an accident. Life was just very full this year. And I, I just kept not doing it. And I'm someone who everyone knows I love to hike. I get out there all the time, but I just wasn't doing it. And finally, I texted myself one night as a reminder so I would see it again in the morning. Get out into the green, gently, slowly, soon. And I think this is the medicine that we need to get back out onto the land. Gently, yes. Slowly, yes. Slow enough to notice creation's whispers. And soon, because truly important practices for our well-being are altogether too easy to put off. I got to hear a lecture by a writer and an artist um, and conservationist named Obi Kaufman in California um, a few years ago. And someone asked him, what do you do when you want to just, you know, try to fix all of the problems that we've caused in the earth. And, you know, there's, there's so many ways to try. And how do, what advice do you have? What do we do? And he said, go down to the river and take your shoes off. You can't fix it without encountering it, encountering with it with love. And so we get back out onto the land and we consider what it means 
to let our art and our words give voice to what we learn. I'm going to read to you a few of my own poems about rivers now. Um, and as this conference title invites us, I will let the art speak for itself. I'll give you a few uh, disclaimers or, or context for some of the poems. Um, but there, then I'll, I'll close with a few more final thoughts. Um, these poems are not yet published, but they will be. Um, so if you want to know more about that, you can find me after find my website. But these are some of my own river poems. This one is called The Falls, and I wrote it about a waterfall in Yosemite where we spend a lot of time every summer. The Falls. The trees hum with the roar of water falling from a great height. The river disintegrates in the rush into droplets flung upon the air, a cascade of wet and space and sound and light. Mist floats in heavy drifts. Moss comes, inviting ferns in their turn, a tiny forest grown by water upon rock. Even the granite succumbs to water's touch, giving way over eons, softened, smoothed. Down in the valley, the water makes a world. All this because a river gives herself to gravity, surrenders herself to flight, and the trees hum with the roar. Now, if that is a poem about surrender, this next one is also about a river, but um, has a very different tone. I gave it to a friend who um, was having to fight very hard to protect her son. It's called Boundaries. I am permeable as a river. I curl south, curve north again. Every turn is sparkling and blue. My path shifts in storm and over time. Every year I press deeper into the earth. Do not underestimate my ferocity. Walk along my edge, look upon the far shore, see the waterfall, the trees. I am the line you do not cross. This next one is a little broader than a river, but it is about water. It's called Of Dust and Water, and I wrote it after a hike. Um, and often what I do is I, I will occasionally write on a hike. More often I will be out in nature, take photos, maybe jot down a few lines or text myself a few lines, and then later come back to it and, and see what comes. So this is Of Dust and Water. Blessed is the one who lays her body down upon the rock and breathes the breath of the mountain. She spreads her limbs in a great X and the thirsty lichen is rough against her back. The rock still holds the coolness of night and the scent of sagebrush hangs in the still air. If I know one thing, it is this. Resurrection is the water from which the universe is born. Do you not see 
Dust we are, and to dust we will return. Have you not heard? We are all stardust, and every atom of our bodies comes from earth, which comes from sky. We are such dust as greens the eons, and our little life is grounded in the deep. Um, I stole the sounds from of that last stanza from Shakespeare. Um, you know, true confession. I like to call it an illusion instead of stealing, but it came from, I had his lines in my head. We are such stuff as dreams are made on and our little life is rounded with the sleep. And I turned it into my own. We are such dust as greens, the eons, and our little life is grounded in the deep. Uh, I'm going to read you a couple more, but... um. This one I actually wrote this morning, and I don't often read poems quite so uh, dripping with wet ink, but um, I, I, I was reading just for my own pleasure this morning. Oh, pleasure. It's a book called The Wild Edge of Sorrow, Rituals of Renewal and the Sacred Work of Grief. That's my kind of pleasure reading. Um, <laughs> And unfortunately, we don't have the cover of this one on the slide because it's a last minute edition. I was literally just reading the introduction. I haven't read the book yet. And um, something came together for me between these words from the writer Francis Weller um, and my own poem that I had written earlier in the day. Um, I get up very early. And so I'll, re I'll read you his words and, and then I'll read you my poem. Um, so he says in this introduction, sorrow helps us remember something long intuited by indigenous people across the planet. Our lives are intricately commingled with one another, with animals, plants, watersheds, and soil. For the last several centuries, we have envisioned a split between our inner lives and the surrounding world. Psyche, however, is not confined to the deep interior of our lives. It overlaps with the wider world. And perhaps in these times, it is most evident in the sorrows and suffering of the earth itself. Our personal experiences of loss and suffering are now bound inextricably with dying coral reefs, melting polar caps the silencing of languages, the collapse of democracy, and the fading of civilization. The personal and the planetary are inseparable, as is our healing. Through grief, we are initiated into a more inclusive conversation between our singular lives and the soul of the world. It is the broken heart that can let slip into its core the shimmer of a salmon gliding just under the surface of the water, the startling arc of a swift, the wonder of Mozart, and the sheer beauty of sunrise. This poem is not yet titled, but it also begins at sunrise. Yesterday at dawn, I received the blessing of the lake the water on my forehead, while next to me a squirrel bent his soft head to drink. Hours later, I walked by the same waters as they pulled a missing diver 
from their deaths. I pulled my mom a little further from the ambulance. Alive when they found him, he died at the hospital within hours. Here we are again, where hope and despair meet like waves crashing into bluffs, relentless and immutable. I'm going to read that last stanza again, which I actually wrote a few days ago. The beginning of the poem is what came to me today. Here we are again, where hope and despair meet, like waves crashing into bluffs, relentless and immutable. I don't know. You might ask me later and I'll tell you I don't know. It depends on the day. Which one is hope and which one is despair? Which one is the relentless waves crashing and crashing? And which one is that bluff, that cliff slide, relentless and immutable? Some days, hope feels like the waves going again and again at these cliffs that just won't move. Other days, hope is the cliff and despair, try as it might, can't make a dent. But where I think I land in terms of the metaphor in my own life Despair might be a bluff, but those waves, those relentless waves of hope, always shifting, crashing, dying, receding, coming back, do slowly over decades and centuries beat away at the immutable nature of the cliff. And though it seems sometimes that despair is stronger, it doesn't win in the end. And I say that in both a very personal sense and also a broader ecological sense, because those things for me um, are inseparable. And I love the wisdom of Francis Weller that our, our own personal sorrows are tied together. And so is our healing. The writer, Caitlin Curtis, she's an indigenous writer writing about living resistance and how we can live in a way that brings more wholeness um, communally and with the earth. She says, art heals us both individually and communally. And I would add that art does this because it tunes our ears to the whispers of creation groaning around us and it tunes our ears to the voice of the divine. So I'll close us with one final poem, and then Cam's going to give us some instructions for lunch. This poem is called How It Is to Love God. When they ask me how it is to know you, I offer only scraps, intimate, mysterious, adventurous, secure. So much I do not tell. The way you hover over me like a pink cloud brushing my horizon. How I lean against you embraced by bare branches who hum with preparation, new life soon to burst from tips, fresh and green. Layers of hills, layers of soil, Always a dark new curve to explore. Allured by mystery, I wander ever deeper. I look again and you rush like waves approaching and receding on the tide. Beckoning, calling, enter me and I will wash over you. Do not be afraid. 
I will never find a metaphor to satisfy my desire to declare your holy mystery of love. Nothing is enough. No word, no deed. And yet, to keep on trying is everything I need. 